and I had already asked Pastor Scott McGee to speak, and I cannot wait um, to hear the word that God has given him. Here's what I told him. He asked me, hey, Chad, is there anything you want me to, you know, sort of share? I said, no, I want you to preach your favorite sermon in the world. So Pastor Scott has been listening to the Lord. I said, what you have, who you are, what you cannot wait to bring to your church family, that's the message I want you to share. So without further ado, can you give a huge round of applause for our brother and pastor, Scott McGee. How's that? Oh, that's loud. That's not what I remember Chad saying. <laughs> I do remember asking him what it, if he had an idea of what he wanted me to talk about, but I, I thought he said that uh, I was supposed to preach on whatever I was most passionate about. Yes. That's it. That's it. Okay. To that end, yeah, um, you probably are thinking, well, yeah, that's the guy that, that's always talking about freedom in Christ. He's going to talk about freedom in Christ. I'm not. <laughs> well, I am. Okay. I have to be totally honest about this. I'm going to talk to you about something that I believe inhibits us getting free in Christ and living free in Christ. It is part of that freedom package that I'm so passionate about because it is in and of itself one of the greatest gifts God gives his people. And without it, I don't think we're, we're ever going to see the freedom Jesus died to give us. That's just the truth of the matter. I've always said that Jesus was the freest person to ever walk the planet. Amen? Amen? Freest person to ever walk the planet. Why? Because he knew who he was in the Father. He knew his identity. There was no question in his mind of who he was. You might be tempted to think, well, that's, that's kind of simple. Uh, in reality, yeah, it is. It is kind of simple. The problem is we have this great ability to make simple complicated, don't we? We can mess up simple like nobody else. Study theology sometime. I challenge you. It's complicated. The most simple message in the world. The gospel is easy enough for a little child to understand it. I've been studying theology for decades. I still don't get it. There's still so much about it that confuses me. I love the pursuit. I do. Because I love to find out more about my God. But we have, we've, we've majored in making the simple hard to access. I think in this case, when it comes to identity, we really can't afford to complicate it. We need to understand the significance of this issue in our lives. Before we jump into that, let's, let's pray, and then I want to share a little story with you. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you. Wow, Father, you just, you know, it, it, it's all about you, Jesus, and you've made it about us, and that is just amazing in my eyes. You love us that much. You want that much to have an intimate and deep, abiding relationship with us. You want us to understand 
deeply and profoundly who we are in you, just like you understood who you are in the Father. And you put it out there for us. I pray that this morning that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. A heavily booked commercial flight out of Denver was canceled. And a single agent was rebooking this long line of inconvenienced passengers. And suddenly an angry passenger pushed his way to the front and he slapped his ticket down on the counter. He said, I have to be on this flight and it has to be first class. I'm sorry, sir, said the agent. I'll be happy to help you, but I have to take care of these folks first. The passenger was unimpressed. Do you have any idea who I am? He demanded in a voice loud enough for all of the other passengers to hear. Without hesitating, the agent smiled and picked up her public address telephone. May I have your attention, please, she broadcast throughout the entire terminal. We have a passenger here at the gate who does not know who he is. If anyone can help him find his identity, please come to the gate. The man retreated and the people in the terminal burst into applause. You know, while most of us would probably never go where that man did, how many of us have had that thought before without voicing it? You're frustrated. You're standing in line. Or something's just not right. And there's someone standing in, in your way of, of getting to whatever it is that you think makes it right. And there's just that kind of thought that comes in you. Do you have any idea who I am? Maybe, maybe that's not quite where you'd go. Maybe you might have worded it differently. Maybe it didn't have real words. Perhaps it was just this inarticulate longing to be recognized, to be known, maybe even just to be valued. You see, identity is a base need in every person's life. How do I know that? The scripture addresses the issue of identity profusely. It begins in Genesis and it doesn't end until the revelation. All through the scripture, God addresses the issue of identity. Do you know most of the major characters in the Bible have their names changed at some point in their life? Why do you think that is? It's an issue of identity. Adam and Eve. Just think about this for, for a minute, okay? Adam and Eve walked and talked with God. And still, they were fooled into accepting an identity that wasn't theirs. So far in my study of biblical identity, it's, it's always been linked to our destiny. I think that's why Satan is after your identity. He knows if he can subvert your identity, he can steal your destiny. Your identity is always linked to your destiny in Christ. So, so let me give you a few examples. Let's start with Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis 3, 4, and 5, Satan responds to Eve about God's prohibition against eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
with these words. You will surely not die. He said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Identity, folks. Tempted with identity. And it isn't even the right identity. But she goes for it. One of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you a few out of the Old Testament, then we'll jump to the New Testament. But my, my, one of my favorite characters out of the Old Testament is Joseph. Anybody ever uh, see Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, Coat of Many Colors, the Technicolor Coat of Many Colors? It's a musical that he wrote, and it, and it has to do with the life of Joseph. I got the opportunity to direct that uh, for a high school musical one year, and it's, I, I, I was the vocal coach for the school. Um, and it was, it was awesome because I got to bring my Bible into a public school because they had to understand the backstory of their characters. So cool. I, I, I loved it. It was like, hmm, and you think you can keep the word of God out of public schools. Even people um, like Andrew Lloyd, Lloyd Webber, who really wrote just a fabulous musical, uh, probably had no idea what he was opening the door to. But Joseph's one of my favorite characters. He's given a dream, he's given a prophecy by God that he will one day rule over his brothers. Remember that part? He didn't handle that information all that well. And because of that, his brothers sell him into slavery in Egypt. That identity, even though it was correct, even though it was God-given, wasn't handled well. And there was a circuitous route to get to where he was going to go. Later on in Joseph's story, he encounters, well, his new master, Potiphar, but Potiphar's wife. Potter's, Potiphar's wife, um, interesting character. She tries to seduce Joseph. And this time, folks, Joseph gets it right. Shall I sin against my God? No. And he heads for the heel. You know what? In running away from her, he ends up in jail. Because she's the only one to tell the story. And so he ends up in jail. He goes to prison for it. But he handled his identity right. Folks, every time you handle your identity right doesn't mean it's going to go well. Okay? Identity can sometimes be a tricky thing. But it's always worth the journey. Eventually, if you hold on to it, the destiny that's attached to your identity will come to pass. Which is why it did for Joseph. In the end, he not only walks in his identity, but he also comes to understand that his identity and his destiny were God's doing. When his brothers come to him to, be, to get food, because there's a famine in Israel, and his brothers travel to Egypt, he stands before them and he tells them that what you meant for evil, God meant for good, that he might save his people. Joseph figured out his identity. He walked in it, and it changed everything. One more character from the Old Testament. 
again, one of my favorite guys in the Old Testament. If you read this story, you just <laughs> you almost have to laugh all the way through the story. That's Gideon. What a study in identity and destiny. In Judges 6, you have this conversation. It says, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Okay, well, just a second here. I'm going to throw this in here. Let me, let me put a little theological context to that verse. In the Old Testament, when it speaks of the angel of the Lord, it's referring to what theology calls a theophany or a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. So therefore, this, this is Jesus possibly appearing much like he did to the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. He appears to Gideon. This has got to be a pretty awesome thing when you stop and think about it. I mean, almost every time, I've, I've made a study of angels throughout my, my Christian life. In fact, when I was, I think I was 17 years old when I was first introduced to the subject, I read uh, Billy Graham's little book called Angels, God's Secret Agents, and I was hooked. I collected every book on the subject of biblical angels since then that I've come across because I was hooked with that whole subject. I just, I love that subject of angels. And here you have an angel who is a pre-incarnate picture of Christ appearing. Almost every time angels appear in the word of God, somebody gets scared. Almost every time somebody gets scared. I think Balaam's one of the few people that I can remember in scripture that didn't get scared. But then he wasn't cognitive of a lot of the things. He couldn't figure out why his donkey was talking to him either. So he, he, he had a lot of things go over his head. But this is what's happening to Gideon. And Gideon replies, but sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that happened to our fathers that we were told about? Did he not bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord's abandoned us and put us in the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And this is the best part. Gideon turns to the Lord and says, but Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Do you hear the identity wrapped up in that? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. Manasseh isn't, isn't really known for being all that strong in the first place. They're actually kind of a hybrid, not Sumerian kind of thing, but close to it. See, Manasseh is actually the descendants of Joseph, Joseph and his Egyptian wife. That's where Manasseh, the tribe of Manasseh comes from. It's actually a split tribe too. One tribe followed after Joshua and crossed the Jordan and possessed the land. Half of the tribe stayed on the other side of Jordan because there was fertile land over there too. And they decided not to. He's actually talking to somebody from the tribe of the, we didn't do it. Not only is he from Manasseh, not necessarily a good thing, but his particular clan, his family is the least. This is the identity that's been handed to him. And God comes along and says, you're my mighty warrior. Ow, that's just weird, Lord. Where did you get an idea like that? Think about it. 
the identity that's contained in Gideon's response. God lays out a huge, seemingly impossible destiny, and he responds, who, me? He's looking around going, man, there's somebody else in this room? Because uh, that doesn't sound like me. you got to be kidding. Who am I? Exactly. Who are you? This is the exact opposite of the guy in the airport. But it is nonetheless a wrong identity. God saw a mighty warrior. Gideon saw an insignificant nobody. Folks, this is a huge issue in the body of Christ. The enemy has convinced us that humility demands that we think nothing of ourselves. Pond scum and lower. You see that arrogant guy in the airport, and you think, well, humility must be the other side of the spectrum. And so we swing that pendulum over to the other side and say, well, that's who we're supposed to be, because we're supposed to be humble, right? Let me be absolutely clear here. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's having a correct understanding of who you are. That is a good word. Danny Silk, one of the senior pastors of Bethel Church Reading, put it this way. Without Jesus, we're all pond scum. With Jesus, we're more than conquerors. The point being, with Jesus, we're a chosen race, the royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Yeah, that's a good word, right, Samuel? Listen, it is said that every 79 seconds, someone in America is a victim of identity theft. That sounds like a lot, but it doesn't even hold a candle to what the enemy is doing minute by minute in terms of stealing people's identity in the, in the kingdom of God. Folks, the enemy wouldn't waste his time on something like your identity if it wasn't significant. It is significant. You know, it's not just significant. It's huge. Let me give you an example from the New Testament, okay? Saul was a man of God. By his own testimony, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Now, there's an identity. He was secure in his calling and his identity. The problem wasn't a lack of identity. The problem was a wrong identity attached to a wrong destiny. All that changed on the road to Damascus. In that one encounter with Jesus, not only was his identity changed from a Pharisee to a bond slave for Jesus, but his new identity cast a new destiny. A destiny that would see his life launch the gospel into a worldwide movement. Consider 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Who wrote those words? Paul. Do you think he knew what he was talking about? I wonder if when he was writing that statement, Paul was thinking about his own journey, his own change of identity. The old has passed away, the new has come. You know, someday if I get a, I get a chance, I'd like to teach on what it means to partner with God in your identity and your destiny. Right now, I want to stay with just this one thought. 
Your identity and your, and your destiny are linked. So to miss the first is to miss them both. For every one of us, our identity is the door to our destiny. The goal of our adversary, our enemy, that thief, is to steal our identity, thus stealing our future and our inheritance. Listen, if Satan can get you to forget who you are, then you will forget where you're going. You'll forget your destiny. Janet and I were talking about this the other day. My wife, Janet, is brilliant. Um, she sees things clearer than I do at times. And uh, I, I'm, I'm going to quote my wife this morning. For all you men out there, it's important to listen. They have good things to say. She said this, the truth of identity is this. Your false identity died on the cross. Your true identity rose from the tomb. Isn't that brilliant? That's brilliant. Think about this for a moment. Saul carried an identity of being a Pharisee of Pharisees. As such, he sought to stop the growth of this aberrant sect of Judaism called the way. In the midst of his persecution of these followers of Jesus, Paul met with a life-altering shift of identity that we refer to as the Damascus Road experience. In that encounter with Jesus, Paul's false identity died like it was crucified. And a new identity rose as a minister and defender of the faith. This paradigm shift this new creature, this new identity came as the old false identity was stripped away by an encounter with Jesus. Folks, all it takes is an encounter with Jesus. Paul became a new creature with a new destiny. Before I can walk in my destiny, before I can walk in the promises of God for my life, I have to figure out who I am in him. This will not Go unchallenged by the enemy. You know, there are a lot of opinions out there about spiritual warfare, and I am not an expert on the subject. There are, however, a few things of which I am convinced. The first time I preached here, I spoke about the subject of offense. Anybody here that day? Okay. Specifically, I talked about how Satan uses offense to damage and divide the body of Christ. The offenses that we hold on to, that we harbor, that we don't let go of, become these roots of bitterness that divide us. And that's his primary tool for breaking down the unity of the body of Christ, is that we would take offense, and that we would hold on to that fence, and we would walk in that offense. I believe, mostly because it's terribly obvious, that offense is his number one tool against our unity because he knows that if he can divide us, if he can set us against one another, we won't be a threat to him. Now, what's that got to do with your identity? See, all this stuff goes together. Simply put, identity is defense against offense. Your identity is your defense against being offended. 
If I know who I am in Christ, if my identity is solid and biblical, then I become unoffendable. Got that? Okay, you didn't get that well enough. Let me repeat that, okay? If I know who I am in Christ, if my identity is solid and it's biblical, in other words, I have a right identity, then I become unoffendable. It doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter what anybody says. I know the truth about me. I know how God sees me. I know who I am in his sight. And quite frankly, his opinion's the only one that matters. In this life, we get to play to an audience of one. Make sure the audience of one is the right one. Let's do a little exercise together. I am nothing if not a pragmatist. I like the practical, okay? I just do. Because... Theoretical just doesn't float my boat too much. In fact, I don't even like theoretical theology, what we call speculative theology. That's one of the worst things on the planet. Do you know how many angels stand on the head of a pin? If you can figure it out, let me know, because I've been studying this subject angels for a long time, and I still haven't figured out how many angels can stand on the head of a pin. Who cares? Are they not all ministering spirits? Yes. Are they not all sent? To help, un, uh, to help believers, yes. What's important? That. I really don't care how many stand on the head of a pin, but you know what? That was a big issue of debate in the Middle Ages. I'm studying the Middle Ages right now, by the way. Sorry. Just thought I'd throw that in there. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Okay, bunny trail. I'm going to hop over here. In studying the Middle Ages... I ran across issues of identity that shocked me. Do you know that there's something out there called the Dictatus Pape? Probably never heard of that before. It's a statement, 26 statements in total, or is it 27? It's 27 statements in total that were written by the head of the church in the Middle Ages. Somebody who just didn't get what identity was or is. One of those statements, I, the first time I read it, I, I had to read it again because I, I wasn't too sure that I read it right. But the statement says, every prince shall bow down and kiss my feet. And this was the head of the church making that statement. And I thought, Really? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me because succession, apostolic succession, is what they were all about back then. And I can't imagine Paul saying that. I can't imagine Peter saying that. That's so far out of the box. And that's certainly not a biblical identity at all to put yourself up over anyone else like that. But that aside, we get our identity wrong a lot. Because there's a battle for identity. And I'd, I fight that battle as much as anybody does. I need to know who I am in Christ in order to win that battle. So this is the exercise. I'm going to give you statements about your identity in Christ. 
your real identity in Christ. These all come from the Bible, folks. And make up any of these. These are God's words about you because you belong to Jesus. And let me make this really, really clear. Too many people have taken their identity and gone the wrong direction. They take it out of the Bible so you can call it biblical, but they have an unbiblical understanding of it and they use it in an unbiblical way. When God says that you are a prince, princess in his kingdom, he is not telling you that you get to act like a worldly prince and lord it over anybody, okay? Too much of that, that garbage goes on in the church today. Folks, these are by no means all of God's words about your identity. We don't have that much time. These are just a few, so I want you to think about that. If you want more, go to your textbook. Textbook, okay? You know, I'm a teacher. I, we have a textbook. This is what God says about you. You are a child of light, a holy priest, a member of God's household, a peacemaker, a saint, anointed, approved by God, blameless, blessed, called, chosen, and clean, eternally comforted, forgiven, fruitful, free, guiltless. You are his possession, his workmanship. You are justified. You are glorified. You are patient and peaceful. You are pleasing in his sight. You are pure. You are redeemed, righteous, sanctified, sealed by the Spirit, steadfast, reigning in life, free in Christ. And last but not least, I'm going to throw in, you are beloved. You are beloved. Last week, Chad spoke about love. He challenged us all to use 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, as a personal declaration by replacing the word love with our own names. Anybody do that exercise this week? Anybody think about that? Let me show you what it looks like, okay? I'm going to put my name in. You think about your name while I read this, okay? Scott is patient. Yeah. Scott is kind. Scott does not envy. Scott does not boast. Scott is not proud. Scott is not rude. Scott is not self-seeking. Scott is not easily angered. Scott keeps no record of wrongs. Scott does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Scott always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Scott never fails. Anybody do that exercise? Sobering, isn't it? Am I really patient and kind and without envy and no boasting, no pride? Do I really never fail in these things? It's a lot to consider. And like me, I hope you took the time to insert your name in there and accept the challenge that they bring to our lives. But let me show you something else from this same passage. Chad asked us to start in verse 4, where I just started with you. But what happens if you back up to verse 1 of this passage and substitute your name in every place that love appears? I know this isn't exactly what Chad meant, but give me a little latitude for a moment, and I want to show you just how brilliant 
our pastor was in setting up my message this morning. It was awesome. Doing the same exercise, okay? Replacing the word love with my name and starting in verse 1, it would read like this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not Scott, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not Scott, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not Scott, I gain nothing. Now, think about that for a moment. I know it sounds a little weird. Every one of those statements is about identity, isn't it? Verse 1, it doesn't matter how smart I might be or how eloquent my words might be. If I don't know who I am, I'm just making noise. I'm a clanging gong or a sounding cymbal. Verse 2, it doesn't matter how talented or gifted I might be. It doesn't even matter how strong my faith might be. I can move a mountain. But if I don't know who I am in Christ... I have nothing. I've done nothing. Verse 3, it doesn't matter how kind or how generous I might be. It doesn't matter if I'm completely self-sacrificing. If I don't know who I am in Christ, it comes to nothing. Now, why do you suppose that Paul would write something like that prior to giving us the most quoted definition of love in all human history. I'm glad you asked. Oh, you didn't ask. You should have asked. You see, nothing in Scripture is there by accident. All Scripture, according to Scripture, is God-breathed, okay? Meaning that it comes from the mind and the heart of God. And all of it is good for teaching and instruction, isn't it? Okay? I believe that Paul wrote verses 1 through 3 because the Holy Spirit inspired him to write that knowing how important our identity would be. Listen, if my identity is wrapped up in something or someone, be it a job, a hobby, a parent, someone in my family, a friend, and that something is taken away or worse, rejects us, what happens? Without a foundation in Christ that understands how God sees us, we're either offended or devastated or both. Many people never recover. Many people who seem to recover, at least on the outside, are wounded so deeply that those scars define every other relationship and pursuit of their entire life. How many, how many rich people have you heard their story from, from rags to riches? I will never be poor. And it motivated their entire life. How many people have gone through multiple Spouses, because somebody at some point let them down and they had to move on because they didn't know who they were in Christ. They had no identity apart from that relationship and that wasn't a healthy one. That wasn't a right one. My wife, Janet, and, and I, we've been helping people get free of the lies and the wounds of their life for more than a decade now. 
And I'm absolutely convinced that identity is the major issue in most everyone's spiritual and temporal life. I have rarely had a person come seeking freedom that didn't need a little help in the area of identity. Sometimes they need a lot of help in that area. Folks, if I could just convince you of how God sees you, if you could grasp the depth of God's love for you, what could possibly hold you back? Who could you not become? What could you not accomplish? What limits would be removed from your thinking and therefore removed from your life? Listen, Satan wants to steal your identity in Christ because he knows that if your identity is unknown, damaged, or just plain wrong, then he has stolen your destiny as well. Last week, Billy Graham went home to be with the Lord. One of my heroes of the faith. I'm sure he was a hero to a lot of people. Of all the things that I read about Dr. Graham this week, and I, I read a lot, the thing that stood out the most to me was his absolute confidence in his identity and his destiny. From a young age, he knew he was called to preach the good news, and he knew who he, who he was in Christ and for Christ. He never lost sight of that identity. His legacy stands as an example of an identity that resulted in a destiny. We admire him, and we admire him for good reason. But here's the thing. His identity is no different than yours or mine. Oh, but Scott, I'm not, I'm not an evangelist. No, 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 no. Hear me. His identity in Christ, all those things that I read to you, is no different in his life than it is in yours. Now, his calling might look different, but his identity is exactly the same. That identity, all those things that I read off for you, are yours in Christ, whether you know it or not, whether you're walking in them or not. They are God's opinion of you in Christ Jesus. It's how he sees you through the Son. He declares, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. You've all heard that verse many times, haven't you? Folks, God has a destiny for you as his beloved. He has a destiny that's attached to that identity. And that would be his plans for you, his intentions towards you. That's probably actually a better translation of the, the Hebrew there. Uh, instead of plans, his intent towards you. This is his heart towards you. This is how God's heart beats towards you. You are my beloved. Your identity is attached to your destiny in Christ. And folks, it's all good. It's all good. Actually, that's, that's kind of a, a tame way of saying it. It's amazing. It's amazing. Jen and I were talking about Philippians 1.6 this week. Paul writes, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work and you will carry it on to, the, to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
Some people have gotten the idea that this promise is God's alone to fulfill. You don't have to do anything. God will get it done. He just promised that. He says, I began a good work in you, and I will carry it on to completion. But that's not the context of the passage, folks. The context of the passage is partnership. Paul prays with joy because of their partnership in the gospel. That's what God is going to be faithful to do. He will never, ever be unfaithful in his partnership with you. But it is a partnership. Your identity is also a partnership, which makes your destiny a partnership as well. Folks, it's not a burden that we bear. It's not an ideal that we have to live up to. It's a gift that we receive and we walk in. It's a gift wrapped up in incredible, unfathomable, inexhaustible love, the love of God. You want to be free to love the way that God loves, what Chad was talking about last week? I I sat there during his, his sermon, not just challenged by it, but realizing, you know what? If I don't have my identity right, I am not free to love people the way that God loves. I, I, I'm just not. Too much of me is going to get in the way. Does that make sense? I need my identity correct. I need it to be right. And I need it to be founded in who Christ is for me and who I am in God's sight. If I'm going to love the way that God loves. We want to be free to love the way that God loves. We need to know then how much we are the beloved of God. If you can grab hold of that identity, just that you are loved by God, incredibly, deeply, passionately, inexhaustibly loved by God, there will not be a limit to the love that flows through you to others, period. Last thing. I wish I had the tons of men and angels. I do. I wish I had the eloquence and the wisdom to convince you of this incredible love of God towards you. Because if you could just get that one part of your identity right, it would change so much. And it's, it's, it's not the only part of your identity by any stretch of the imagination, but I believe it's foundational to the degree that we understand how much we are treasured, how much we are loved, we are able to love. I wish I had the power to give you a vision of your incredible identity and destiny in Christ. I don't. But I know somebody who does. He's called the Holy Spirit. He resides within every believer. What I could never hope to be adequate in, he excels in. What I can only point to, he reveals. So here's what I'd like to challenge you to do. I've actually done this myself. Start looking for your identity in the scriptures. If I can make a recommendation, start with the epistles of Paul, okay? 
but start looking for your identity in Scripture. Like I said before, you know what? It's all through Scripture. It starts with Adam and Eve, and it runs the gamut, okay? It's all through Scripture, but if I can make a suggestion, Ephesians would be a great place to start. Just the first chapter. If, you, if, you, if that doesn't put you on your knees, I don't know what will put you on your knees, but start looking for it. Start looking for how God sees you. And watch how he encourages you and empowers you to become all of that identity so that your destiny cannot be subverted by the enemy. When you find a piece of identity in scripture that's a challenge for you, folks, this is important. Perhaps it's just something that in your estimation is maybe not quite quite where you're at right now. That's okay. Ask God about it. Just for instance, let's take the identity of being patient. I truly excel in being patient with people. I am horrible about being patient with everything else. If you sat down in front of me, I will be patient till the ends of the earth trying to help you through whatever issue you have. I really will. But don't get me behind the wheel of a car waiting for a light to change. I have issues. And I'm working on those. But take patience, for example. Or, you know, for some of you, worry. Ooh, worry. Hmm. You know what? If you're struggling in that area, if, if that's not you and you know it's not you, ask the Holy Spirit why. Ask him why. Search for truth in your innermost being. Why do I say that? Because that's where the Holy Spirit resides, in your innermost being. Tap into the Holy Spirit that resides within you because he is a revealer of truth. And you know what? He's great about helping us get to the truth that will transform us. It's a simple thing, but it's also an incredibly powerful thing. The more you discover about your identity, the more you will find yourself immersed in his love and the clearer your destiny will shine. That's just the truth of the matter. I wanted to tie in with what Chad preached last week and I I think I, I, I did that because the one thing I wanted to impress on you more than anything was the love of God this morning because that is so foundational to my my identity in Christ, that I am his beloved. And you know what speaks to that? The cup and the bread that we celebrate every Sunday, that we come forward and we take every Sunday. I want to do a little different spin maybe than what normally happens on a Sunday morning with communion. You see... There's scripture that speaks to the idea of God's love, like Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What an incredible statement of God's love, right? Well, how much more so, those of us who are in Christ, should we revel in that love? Some of you have probably read Zephaniah 317 before. 
through 16, 17. But for those of you who don't or have never read that passage, it actually tells you that God delights in you in a way that I never fathomed before reading that. God doesn't just sing over you, folks. He dances over you. And the word there that they use in the Hebrew for dancing, it means spinning and twirling. You didn't know that God was a ballet dancer, did you? That came to my mind this morning as Jan and I were at, at coffee at Starbucks. We have a Sunday morning thing that we do. Because when I was pastoring a church, we were, we were what they were called a, a church in a box. And we had to unload every, every morning, set up the sound system, set up the chairs, set up the tables, set up everything, okay? And so we started our Sunday mornings at 7 a.m. Well, now that we come to a church, the, the service is, is at 10, you know, we have all this time Sunday morning. So we now have this Sunday morning date that we go on every Sunday morning to Starbucks where we can sit and talk. And we were sitting and we were talking and I, and I made the comment about, we have amazing children. We do, we have these two amazing girls. And it kind of got us into that, that, you know, immediately my wife said, yeah, that's because I'm amazing. <laughs> and, and just jokingly, obviously. But she said, but you were too. And I said, well, you know, I tried. She said, well, who else would dance and twirl down the hallway with them? And you know, to this day, that's one of the things my girls remember about me and, and, and growing up the most is daddy would dance like a ballerina down the hallway with them. I know you can't imagine that, and I am not going to repeat it for you on stage this morning, okay? But that's God dancing over you. What, what, what I might mirror as a father to my children, he does perfectly for his children. The way I love my children, even though I can't imagine them loving, me loving them more than I do, he loves me more than that. He loves them more than that. He loves you more than anything I could ever fathom. That's what we celebrate when we come to communion, folks. God dancing over us. Communion tends to be this very solemn thing, and, and I'm, 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 I understand that. We're talking about the blood and the body of Christ offered up on a cross for us, and we do this in remembrance of him, but never, ever lose sight of the fact that we do it with joy because Jesus did it with joy. Hebrews chapter 12. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was that about? You. You are the joy. Yeah, the scripture tells us that, that this, the joy of the Lord is our strength. We get that wrong. We imagine that somehow that the joy of God out there gives us strength. No, the joy of the Lord, his joy over us is what's supposed to give us strength. When you understand how he delights over you to the point of considering it joy to endure a cross, folks, that's an identity that's an identity that cannot be surpassed. That's what he invites you to this morning. And I invite you to come. If you're over here, come down to this direction. If you're here, come down to the middle. And if you're there, come down to the other side. And partake of the joy of God over you this morning.
that's what these animals represent. Let's pray and then you come. Heavenly Father, I just come before you this morning, Father God, because you love us the way that you do, we can have confidence and boldness to come before the throne of grace, to receive this communion in the spirit that it's given, that spirit of unending love and joy over us. What an incredible gift. We take it, we receive it this morning. In Jesus' name. Come on. 
There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. And all the overwhelm me, never ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. No, I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it, still you give yourself away. And all the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Lord, we just thank you for that love this morning. We thank you for moving on our hearts, for revealing your heart to us. We pray that we would all find ourselves in the loving arms of a good, good father this morning. We thank you, God, that you care about us knowing who we are in you. So come, Holy Spirit, continue to speak and minister and move in Jesus' name.